This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Rosalind Petalin, Honorary Associate Professor at the University of Queensland. Her book, How Writing Works, A Field Guide to Effective Writing, was published in a second edition by Routledge this year. A lot gets said, and of course written, about the place of writing in research and the role of the writer in the researcher. And of that a lot very much makes the point that the writing and the writer are both so complex and so multifaceted that a person's research and the person him or herself are best served when a they admit the writing into their research process to let it aid and advance their research, and B, when the person recognizes themselves as a writer too, so that they can really climb into their role as researcher and achieve their best. Basically, the writing to the researching is what rehearsal is to the performance, and the writer is to the researcher what the performer is to the person performing. These are very connected, very intimate relationships. And any next show, or to step out of this metaphor, any next article or book, is going to come off all the better for the time spent on it rehearsing, or again, out of the metaphor, writing. Here is Rosalind Petalin on the topic in her own words. Language scholars have long argued that humans find meaning in the world by exploring it through their own use of language. Many creative writers testify that they don't know what they're thinking until they start writing about it. Many professional writers would say the same. When people write about something, they understand and learn it better. That's why this is called the writing-thinking-learning connection. By exploiting this interdependence between writing, thinking, and learning, you will be able to use writing as a tool to more effectively think, learn, and communicate, both at university and in the workplace. Writing creates ideas. We get to know the world through language. We write to find out what we want to say. Writing is epistemic. It constructs, creates knowledge. 
As the American scholar T.Y. Booths explains, the assumption that composing is primarily or essentially a matter of getting clearly in mind what we want to say, and then finding the words which will recall those meanings and make them available to others, is possibly the single most serious obstacle for most people all through the composing process. That is Rosalind Petalin in her book, How Writing Works. This is Rosalind on scholarly communication. Hi, Rosalind. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Daniel. It's a pleasure. The quote I just gave there seems to uh, speak to quite a lot of what, let's say, at base, your book is about this connection between the writing and the thinking and the learning, this sort of depiction of writing as a process that is so complex and so omnipresent in our lives today that um, it bears thinking about no matter what it is that you're doing, all the way from working perhaps as a secretary up through researching as a biologist. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. I have been teaching for a very long time. From a rhetoric and comp point of view, uh, which you would identify with coming out of the humanities. And the whole thrust of my teaching is to get students and workplace writers to respect rhetorical relationships, to understand that every document has a purpose, uh, an exigency, has a context, has content, is part of a genre and really importantly, has consequences. You mentioned the uh, rhetoric and comp, and, and very rightly, yes, that is a background that I can relate to very much. Um, I also interview here on the program very often people who work in writing centers, which is one of the hubs of writing at uh, any university now throughout the world, but definitely for a very long time in America. Um, for the longest time, they are the major method, uh, this has been put into question a bit, but I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about it. The major method had been non-directive. So a sort of hearing the author on his or her project and asking questions back to get the thinking process and the composing process going for them. Um, as I said, this has been perhaps also put into question in more recent decades or the last 10 to 15 years anyway. Um, I wonder where you would stand there on, on that as a method. Well, one of the activities that I um, was engaged in for a very long time and actually as a pioneer in Australia was a writing across the curriculum program at one of the universities I had taught at previously, Queensland University of Technology. And in that writing across the curriculum context, it the, the kind of teaching that I did, the workshops that I ran with my teaching assistants were really more directed because it was an institute of technology and students graduating needed to be able to write very well, very reliably, etc. That's how they got their jobs. And then when I went to the University of Queensland, I set up a postgraduate program in writing, editing and publishing. And that program was training writers, student writers, all of whom were graduates before they came into the program, to be the best they could be. I called them gold-collar workers because they were 
getting jobs. One student got a job as an editor at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. They were going into international arenas and they needed they needed my direction and they took my direction. And some people might think that's, you know, not as easy a way uh, for students as the um, writing centre um, methods. But uh, I strongly believe in them. Um, I, I was going for top quality. One of my students um, who went on to do a PhD with me, his uh, dissertation was graded by a top English professor at Oxford and a philosophy um, professor at Cambridge. So I was, you know, heading for the top, training for the top. Yeah, I think that's part of what's being discovered is that the non-directive method has its place perhaps in undergraduate education. But when, just as you said, you're dealing in a professional context, I like that the gold collar <laughs> worker, um, you're... Uh, really aiming to speed along a process that requires practice, essentially, that is the writing, of course, um, but getting people the furthest that you can in the time that's allotted to you. Yeah, I mean, I have been criticised occasionally for exuding um, an expectation of excellence. But the students who were able to get to that level um, were very grateful for that. And that's why the program won prizes and was prestigious because they were, students were able to reach a, a very high level of uh, writing and editing, obviously, quality. You've given us now already a bit of your background. I, I, I think it would be helpful, though, for listeners to under, also understand the book if we understood we're in a second edition now. So what new has come into it? Um, I also know, and um, it's it's quite clear, uh, uh, announced in the book itself that you have also run writing programs, which you've referred to, Write 101X, English Grammar and Style, for example. So this might be just a nice occasion to give us a little bit more on your background and the background to this uh, second edition of the book. Okay. Well, I've been teaching writing now for decades. I started as a high school English teacher for a while, then I went into the university and I've taught at, as I said before, Queensland University of Technology. I was invited to teach at Cornell for a semester in the hotel school. Then I was invited to apply for the, um, a position at the University of Queensland. In 2014, when uh, Harvard and MIT were setting up edX, the consortium that um, developed MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, my university made available quite a lot of money for certain of us who were successful to develop MOOCs. So I developed English Grammar and Style. Um, I was an instructor there for 16 courses from 2014 until very recently and only this month has the the university um, decided that instead of an instructor-led um, MOOC, they would go for the self-paced version. Now, up until this course um, version, the 17th, the course had attracted 
more than 800,000 students. Um, it, had, it was placed at the 24th, um, 24th place out of 19,400 MOOCs. So it's been enormously popular. Um, a lot of um, students whose English, English is not their first language enrolled. It was a free course. Um, in an effort to enhance their career paths, which they have done. And what made it particularly special was the fact that a couple of the early students who did this MOOC came on with me to onto the platform to work as teaching assistants, and they spent hundreds, in fact, probably thousands of hours responding to students on the discussion board. So this discussion board created an unbelievable community of writers. So I'm wondering what will happen now that this discussion board won't be monitored by me or my wonderful teaching assistants, one of whom was in Cyprus and one of whom was in Seattle and another one was here in Queensland. So um, the book, the book I first wrote, the book, the first edition was published in Australia in 2016. And when Alan and Unwin, a top, the top academic publisher in Australia, they sold the book to Routledge. And I approached Routledge to um, ask whether I could write a second edition and they said yes immediately. So this second edition, which came out um, early this year, 2022, uh, was really an, up, an, up, an upgrade, not an upgrading so much as um, an upstyling, I guess, of the 2016 um, edition. So I had five years more of examples and experience, etc., etc. So that's how the second edition came about. Yeah, so the uh, book clearly is heading in an international direction, and it's uh, expanding, and it seems, uh, as you were saying earlier, very much to be based on this concept of successful writing, whatever that happens to mean for the genre the person is working in, or the context in which the person is writing in, uh, be that research or for their work. So. I suppose, uh, also speaking from the book, from what it has to offer, um, what is it that you see as the primary role for the writing instructor slash consultant? I guess because it covers all of the bases. As somebody, one of the um, blurb writers said, it's the ultimate writing resource because it caters for all kinds of writers um, student writers, creative writers, technical writers, journalistic writers, corporate writers, and all of them need to be able to write well, write successfully, for um, either personal or corporate credibility. Yeah. Um, then it, it it is one of those things that uh, when somebody goes to apply their writing to whatever their job might be or to their research. I see this very much with the um, students of science that I work with. They think that they're really just topping off a process that um, they've actually done elsewhere. So for example, a biologist has done the work in the lab and the writing is really just topping it off. And I would imagine that in your experience working, you've had to probably expand this notion <laughs> and, and, and make it clear what the writing is actually doing 
um, in the case of, say, a researcher there? A researcher or a, um, a writer with great responsibility. One consulting job that I did recently was with a set of orthopaedic surgeons who were writing reports for the courts and for insurance companies for people who had suffered sort of industrial accidents and were um, trying to get compensation. Now, I, as I always do, I got a set of documents from the person who had hired me, who actually was a former student and who knew my work and who had been through um, my strategies and heuristics and shared them with this group of surgeons. So she sent me the documents and I was to do a one-hour workshop and I was quite nervous about it because they were very high-level um, surgeons and their writing was quite good but could do with quite a lot of help. So I went through the documents and prepared um, an editing test, um, sort of 20 sentences. I, I know people would be very critical of that, taking, you know, one sentence at a time. But I prepared this worksheet and was very nervous. And I went through, I handed it out and they got stuck into it with their pens and pencils. And I couldn't believe it. They were so appreciative and so cognizant of the strategies that I was suggesting that it was quite a marvellous experience. They clapped me at the end, which you know I, I wasn't expecting. So these were people who did not think you know, I'm an orthopaedic surgeon, I'm highly educated, I can write terrifically well, I'm writing these reports for the courts and nobody is ever critical of my writing and I don't think I can improve it. And that's not what happened. They really appreciated being able to streamline their writing um, and sort of get out some of the problems that I identified just to help them write, to enhance their self. They're enhancing self-efficacy is a crucial strategy for writers. Yeah, and that and that would really probably answer this sort of perennial problem of are we dealing on sentence level? Um, very many uh, people in writing studies would look at that as lower order concerns. I mean, the name itself really values it. <laughs> or are we dealing with text level or conceptual level, higher order concerns, as they say? And uh, you mentioned it right there in, in your preparation for the, the workshop, the idea that, yeah, you were going down into the sentence level despite what some people might have there for reservation. I see that self-efficacy idea as adapting to what it is that the writer is going to need. And it would seem that you hit the nail on the head with that group. Mm, yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I've done a lot of other um, consulting for different um, crowds of people, you know, PR people, academics. I There was a wonderful... Um, conference that I went to every year on corporate communication that was in England and then went to New York, um, set at um, City University in New York. And every year when I went to that conference, before the conference, I would do an afternoon's workshop with people who'd come from all over the world. And again, a lot of them did not have English as their first language. And they loved the work that I did. Um, on academic writing because they were, you know, training to be academics, so research papers, research reports, etc. 
yeah, with the the sentence level, for me, sometimes I think gets uh, a bad rap, to put it that way, uh, because I sometimes feel that uh, this constant concern for the sort of conceptual framework, the logic and so on, and then you get it into the sentences, uh, you might also have people who can work that backwards when they realize what clarity of thought is as it appears on the line in the word choice, yeah, from phrase to phrase, very many people might just be able to sort of automatically figure that one backwards, yeah? But when they're not able to get down on each line or in each word what they want or need, then uh, you can conceptualize them all that you want, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Steven Pinker calls it reverse engineering. You look at a sentence and you work out how that effect was achieved. There's another marvellous um, English uh, academic um, teacher, actually, um, Brian Dillon. I think he's at Goldsmiths, and he picks apart great sentences from great writers. So the, the idea um, when I was in primary school and I learned grammar, we learned how to analyse a sentence. And I now do the kind of teaching of... Um, sentence analysis that I learned when I was 10 years old, and it comes as a great revelation to 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds, the idea of analysing how each word functions in the sentence. Um, Another great um, writer on that is Stanley Fish. Another one is Joseph Williams. Um, Again, this business of reverse engineering, working out why that's such a good sentence. And if you look at a lot of good sentences, you can work out how to create them yourself. And your book offers the opportunity for that. I mean, it's loaded with, you've just mentioned some of the uh, further reading, and there's fantastic um, sources there, also online sources for people to go a little bit more into depth on some of the topics that you that you get into, activities as well. And there's also, which which you've shown as, as well in this interview by referring to this, that, or the other person and how they've described something, just so many apt quotes throughout, quotes that really get you thinking. For, for example, I mean, it would take me another half hour to read off the ones I really liked, but to move up from the sentence, we could go to the paragraph. And of course, the, the venerable Churchill um, says, you quote him on the uh, paragraph, Just as the sentence contains one idea in all its fullness, so the paragraph should embrace a distinct episode. And as sentences should follow one another in harmonious sequence, so the paragraphs must fit onto one another like the automatic couplings of railway carriages. Um, What we're dealing with here is something that's slightly dated, of course, with the railway carriages, but we all know what he means. And he captures that image just right. So, I mean, if we move up to the slightly larger block of text in a piece of writing, what would be some of the uh, sort of general pieces of advice that come to your mind there? Well, in my chapter on academic research and writing, there's it starts out with a wonderful quote by another American rhetorician, David Bartholomew, 
And he says, every time a student sits down to write for us, the student has to invent the university for the occasion, invent the university, that is, or a branch of it, like history or anthropology or economics or English. The student has to learn to speak our language, to speak as we do, to try on the peculiar ways of knowing, selecting, evaluating, reporting, concluding, and arguing that define the discourse of our community. To write, for example, as a literary critic one day and as an experimental psychologist the next. So there, you know, there's as you say, there are so many examples in the book, and there would be even more if the um, companion website, which I prepared for Routledge back in October, was up and running. But it's not up and running yet because there are lo- there's loads of other material there as well. So, I mean, somebody said to me, your book's worth reading just for the rich pickings of the cultural and literary references, because even though I'm coming out of the literature back, literature and film background, I have done so much writing across the curriculum with, you know, maths and IT and science, biology, so many students in so many other disciplines that I'm kind of au fait with um, a lot of other areas as well as lit. Yeah, um, it, I, I think maybe as an interesting closing question would be to get to the subtitle of your book. Um, <laughs> you uh, show a broad level of experience in your own practice as an instructor and a consultant. Was this field guide um, to effective writing also inspired perhaps by the field guide to birds, that famous book, which... Um, is well-written and is also something that you take out into uh, the work that you're doing, in that case, birding. I must confess, no. I had written, co-written an earlier book, in fact, 20 years ago, called The Professional Writing Guide, Writing Well and Knowing Why. And that was a terrific subtitle, but I couldn't use it again. And interestingly, that 20-something-year-old book is still being sold. It was uh, Routledge bought um, How Writing Works, but they also bought the Professional Writing Guide and are still publishing it. So, no, um, the a field guide to effective writing just sort of came about. I think it was the publisher, my original publisher, who um, suggested that. Well, thank you very much for that, Rosalind. That is Rosalind Petalin and her book, How Writing Works, A Field Guide to Effective Writing, is out with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Rosalind. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication. 